In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. Monday for me. What day is it for you? Is it Tuesday, Wednesday, Saturday? Greatest day ever? Whatever day it is, thank you for taking a few minutes to hang out with me. We're getting back into Theodore Ted Kaczynski, a.k.a. the Unabomber. This guy, I'll tell you what, this guy was ahead of his time. He may have been out of his mind. But he was definitely ahead of his time. And to me, it's interesting to think about people who think about things differently. I think it also backs up the statement that man's best thinking is done outdoors. This is a guy that moved out into a shack way out in the middle of nowhere. I think he was out in Montana. Had a small little cabin where he would just read and kind of live life the natural way and be away from technology. The reason he was so far away from technology is his belief that technology was going to enslave the world. We left off talking about feelings of inferiority. This is from the book Technological Slavery, and the first part of the book is called Industrial Society and Its Future. We are moving on to the next reading, which is going to be Over-Socialization. Again, these uh, what I am reading is, they're clearly not my ideas. However, I think these ideas are important enough for people to consider them, and that's why I'm going over them with you, my friends. What do you guys think about this? Is it just pure craziness? Or can you find some nuggets of truth in the words of Ted Kaczynski? Let us begin. 
Psychologists use the term socialization to designate the process by which children are trained to think and act as society demands. A person is said to be well socialized if he believes in and obeys the moral code of his society and fits in well as a functioning part of that society. It may seem senseless to say that many leftists are over-socialized, since the leftist is perceived as a rebel. Nevertheless, the position can be defended. Many leftists are not such rebels as they seem. Let me just stop there for just one quick second. For those of you that have kids, I want you to think about this term over-socialization. I want you to think about what you watched and what you listened to when you were a kid. I'm in my 40s. When I was a kid, we, there was uh, G.I. Joe was the big cartoon. And what did G.I. Joe do for men? Well, G.I. Joe taught young men that you should be in the military and that you should, knowing is half the battle, you should try and understand what's going on because now you know and knowing's half the battle. For girls, there were Barbies and Barbie was a lot like the housewives today. And G.I. Joe of yesterday is a lot like the first person shooter games of today. So if you think about our media and you think about socialization and you think about the music and the programs that were programming the people our age, you can see a path. And if you can see that path, you can kind of predict the future. Remember the movies we saw like Top Gun and you know all the movies about the military where America was the good guy and we were going in and saving people and you know, that, those are all propaganda that's aimed at young, impressionable people to socialize them in a way in which is beneficial for the state. The reason I'm yammering on about this is I've noticed some interesting, well, I think they are. I think that they're kind of scary. If that's true, if, if the programs that are being shown to kids now are any idea of the future, then I think you can see a future beginning that is going to make us do some horrible things. My daughter was watching this program from Disney and it's all about the it's all about the children of villains in Disney movies. Right? Not a bad premise. Like they all get together and sing and dance and it seems kind of happy. However, if you listen to the words of the songs that these kids are singing, you know, there's there's definitely a a relationship between music and thinking. And what the songs are that are being sung to these children are like, it's good to be bad. Yeah, yeah, you should be horrible. Yeah, I'm going to kill this person. Like, it's just... Maybe they don't say, I'm going to kill this person. But they just start drilling in how good it is to be bad. And how being villains are good. It's like this subversive nature of this anti-hero. And the anti-hero has become the new hero. Which, it seems to me in the back of kids' minds, you're giving them permission to do horrible things. 
And if you look at, if, if, if you were laying out a long-term plan to subvert a nation, if you were laying out a long-term plan, you, would be, you, you always begin with indoctrination. You begin with the kids. And it seems to me, it seems to me, it's at least plausible that we are beginning to set up the United States to be somewhat like the Nazi party in Germany. Like There is being, it seems to me that there is a movement afoot to create poverty and anger and hatred in Americans so that they will do horrific things to people. And if you can slowly start telling the children it's okay to be bad, what you're doing is you're very slowly taking away the morality. You know, you're just slightly peeling away the morality and saying, hey, it's okay to be bad. Meanwhile, while kids today grow up, they're going to see their grandparents, their parents have nothing, have things stripped away from them, a possible a possible breakdown in the economy, possible to have pensions being taken away, all under the guise of COVID. And once you've once you have done that, once you've demoralized a generation of people and you have given permission to the children of those people to be bad, you have put in place a mindset that will allow brutality to blossom. And unlike Nazi Germany, who was, I think it was Kissinger who said, you know, poor Germany, they're, they're too big to, they're too big for Europe, but too small to rule the world, right? They were, they had the technical know-how, they had the drive, but they just didn't have the population to do it. America does. America does. And as divided as we are now, you know, it was less than 20 years ago when everyone was waving flags after 2011. Remember when the towers got hit and you couldn't buy a flag in a store? People were walking around high-fiving each other, waving the flags, talking about how much they love America. Imagine what will happen if indeed there is some sort of attack where, be it a bio attack or, you know, a made-up bio attack or, you know, if it is in fact some sort of limited nuclear strike and then it's blamed on Iran or blamed on China like you will see America unite in a way and and God forbid it's it's aimed at a race of people because there, there'll be no stopping America America will you will see what the Germans did to the Jews look like kindergarten like I think that there, there's that level of hate just being fostered into the young people of today. right? When, you, when people have nothing left to lose, they lose it. And it's clear to me that the economy and the stock market are being propped up. And as soon as that rug is pulled from there and everything crashes, like I think that you could see, it's possible that you could see atrocities on a level that no one has ever seen before. So, I just wanted to throw that in there since he was talking about socialization and how it starts with the kids. Okay, back to the book here. 
The moral code of our society is so demanding that no one can think, feel, and act in a completely moral way. For example, we are not supposed to hate anyone, yet almost everyone hates somebody at some time or other, whether he admits it to himself or not. Some people are so highly socialized that the attempt to think, feel, and act morally imposes a severe burden on them. In order to avoid feelings of guilt, they continually have to deceive themselves about their own motives and find moral explanations for feelings and actions that in reality have a non-moral origin. We use the term over-socialized to describe such people. Over-socialization can lead to low self-esteem, a sense of powerlessness, defeatism, guilt, etc. One of the most important means by which our society socializes children is by making them feel ashamed of behavior or speech that is contrary to society's expectations. If this is overdone, or if a particular child is especially susceptible to such feelings, he ends by feeling ashamed of himself. Moreover, the thought and the behavior of the over-socialized person are more restricted by society's expectations than are those of the lightly socialized person. The majority of people engage in a significant amount of naughty behavior. They lie, they commit petty thefts, they break traffic laws, they goof off at work, they hate someone, they say spiteful things, or they use some underhanded trick to get ahead of the other guy. The over-socialized person cannot do these things, or if he does do them, he generates in himself a sense of shame and self-hatred. The over-socialized person cannot even experience, without guilt, thoughts or feelings that are contrary to the accepted morality. He cannot think unclean thoughts. And socialization is not just a matter of morality. We are socialized to conform to many norms of behavior that do not fall under the heading of morality. Thus, the over-socialized person is kept on a psychological leash and spends his life running on rails that society has laid down for him. In many over-socialized people, this results in a sense of constraint and powerlessness that can be a severe hardship. We suggest that over-socialization is among the more serious cruelties that human beings inflict on one another. We argue that a very important and influential segment of the modern left is over-socialized and that their over-socialization is of great importance in determining the direction of modern leftism. Leftists of the over-socialized type tend to be intellectuals or members of the upper middle class. Notice the, that university intellectuals constitute the most highly socialized segment of our society and also the most left-wing segment. The leftist of the over-socialized type tries to get off his psychological leash and assert his autonomy by rebelling. But usually he is not strong enough to rebel against the most basic values of society. Generally speaking, the goals of today's leftists are not in conflict with the accepted morality. On the contrary, the left takes an accepted moral principle, adopts it as its own, and then accuses mainstream society of violating that principle. Examples, racial equality, equality of the sexes, helping poor people, peace as opposed to war, nonviolence generally, freedom of expression, kindness to animals, more fundamentally, the duty of the individual to serve society and the duty of society to take care of the individual. All these have been deeply rooted values of our society, or at least of its middle and upper classes, for a long time. 
These values are explicitly or implicitly expressed or presupposed in most of the material presented to us by the mainstream communications media and the educational system. Leftists, especially those of the over-socialized type, usually do not rebel against these principles, but justify their hostility to society by claiming, with some degree of truth, that society is not living up to these principles. Here is an illustration of the way in which the over-socialized leftist knows, I'm sorry, shows his real attachment to the conventional attitudes of our society while pretending to be in rebellion against it. Many leftists push for affirmative action, for moving black people into high prestige jobs, for improved education in black schools and more money for such schools. The way of life of the black underclass they regard as a social disgrace. They want to integrate the black man into the system, make him a business executive, a lawyer, a scientist, just like upper middle class white people. The leftists will reply that the last thing they want is to make the black man into a copy of the white man. Instead, they want to preserve African-American culture. But in what does this preservation of African-American culture consist? It can hardly consist in anything more than eating black-style food, listening to black-style music, wearing black-style clothing, and going to a black-style church or mosque. In other words, it can express itself only in a superficial matter. In all essential respects, most leftists of the over-socialized type want to make the black man conform to white middle-class ideals. They want to make him study technical subjects, become an executive or a scientist, spend his life climbing the status ladder to prove that black people are as good as white. They want to make black fathers responsible. They want black gangs to become nonviolent, but these are exactly the values of the industrial technological system. The system couldn't care less what kind of music a man listens to, what kind of clothes he wears, or what religion he believes in as long as he studies in school, holds a respectable job, climbs the status ladder, is a responsible parent, is nonviolent, and so forth. In effect, however, much he may deny it, the over-socialized leftist wants to integrate the black man into the system and make him adopt its values. We certainly do not claim that leftists, even of the over-socialized type, never rebel against the fundamental values of our society. Clearly, they sometimes do. Some over-socialized leftists have gone so far as to rebel against one of modern society's most important principles by engaging in physical violence. By their own account, violence is for them a form of liberation. In other words, by committing violence, they break through the psychological restraints that have been trained into them. Because they are over-socialized, these restraints have been more confining for them than for others. Hence their need to break free of them. But they usually justify their rebellion in terms of mainstream values. If they engage in violence, they claim to be fighting against racism or the like. We realize that many objections could be raised to the foregoing thumbnail sketch of leftist psychology. The real situation is complex, and anything like a complete description of it would take several volumes, even if the necessary data were available. We claim only to have indicated very roughly the two most important tendencies in the psychology of modern leftism. The problems of the leftist are indicative 
of the problems of our society as a whole. Low self-esteem, depressive tendencies, and defeatism are not restricted to the left. Though they are especially noticeable in the left, they are widespread in our society. And today's society tries to socialize us to a greater extent than any previous society. We are even told by experts how to eat, how to exercise, how to make love, how to raise our kids, and so forth. The power process. Human beings have a need, probably based in biology, for something that we will call the power process. This is closely related to the need for power, which is widely recognized. But it is not quite the same thing. The power process has four elements. The three most clear-cut of these we call goal, effort, and attainment of goal. Everyone needs to have goals whose attainment requires effort and needs to succeed in attaining at least some of his goals. The fourth element is more difficult to define and may not be necessary for everyone. We call it autonomy, and we'll discuss it later. Consider the hypothetical case of a man who can have anything he wants just by wishing for it. Such a man has power, but he will develop serious psychological problems. At first, he will have a lot of fun, but by and by, he will become acutely bored and demoralized. Eventually, he may become clinically depressed. History shows that leisured aristocracies tend to become decadent. This is not true of fighting aristocracies that have to struggle to maintain their power. But leisured, secure aristocracies that have no need to exert themselves usually become bored, hedonistic, and demoralized, even though they have power. This shows that power is not enough. One must have goals toward which to exercise one's power. Everyone has goals, if nothing else, to obtain the physical necessities of life, food, water, and whatever clothing and shelter are made necessary by the climate. But the leisured aristocrat obtains these things without effort, hence his boredom and demoralization. Non-attainment of important goals results in death if the goals are physical necessities, and in frustration if non-attainment of the goals is compatible with survival. Consistent failure to attain goals throughout life results in defeatism, low self-esteem, or depression. Thus, in order to avoid serious psychological problems, a human being needs goals whose attainment requires effort, and he must have a reasonable rate of success in attaining his goals. I would agree with, with that. You know, there's the old adage of short sleeves to short sleeves, or is it shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves? In three generations, so you have a wealthy, a wealthy family. Then they have kids. That kid's a little bit coddled, grows up, maybe not getting to the peak level of what he could be. And then his kid is usually really spoiled, and then blows all the money. Right. So you go from shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves. It's interesting to think about too. When I think about depression, I heard another good quote that said, depression is being trapped in the past and anxiety is being trapped in the future. Good thing to think about if you ever find yourself in one of those two states. But not every leisured, here's some, the next part of the reading gets into surrogate activities. And again, we were talking about attaining goals and decadence. Surrogate activities. But not every leisured aristocrat becomes bored with 
and demoralized. For example, the emperor Hirohito, instead of sinking into decadent hedonism, devoted himself to marine biology, a field in which he became distinguished. When people do not have to exert themselves to satisfy their physical needs, they often set up artificial goals for themselves. In many cases, they then pursue these goals with the same energy and emotional involvement that they otherwise would have put into search for physical necessities. Thus, the aristocrats of the Roman Empire had their literary pretensions. Many European aristocrats a few centuries ago invested tremendous time and energy in hunting. Though they certainly did not need the meat, other aristocracies have competed for status through elaborate displays of wealth. And a few aristocrats, like Hirohito, have turned to science. We use the term surrogate activity to designate an activity that is directed toward an artificial goal that people set up for themselves, merely in order to have some goal to work toward, or let us say merely for the sake of the fulfillment that they get from pursuing the goal. Here is a rule of thumb for the identification of surrogate activities. Given a person who devotes much time and energy to the pursuit of goal X, ask yourself this. If he had to devote most of his time and energy to satisfying his biological needs, and if that effort required him to use his physical and mental faculties in a varied and interesting way, would he feel seriously deprived because he did not attain goal X? If the answer is no, then the person's pursuit of goal X is a surrogate activity. Hirohito's studies in marine biology clearly constitute a surrogate activity, since it is pretty certain that if Hirohito had had time to spend his time working at interesting non-scientific tasks in order to obtain the necessities of life, he would not have felt deprived because he didn't know all about the anatomy and life cycles of marine animals. On the other hand, the pursuit of sex and love, for example, is not a surrogate activity. Because most people, even if their existence were otherwise satisfactory, would feel deprived if they passed their lives without ever having a relationship with a member of the opposite sex. But pursuit of an excessive amount of sex, more than one really needs, can be a surrogate activity. Think Charlie Sheen. Hashtag winning. In modern industrial society, only minimal effort is necessary to satisfy one's physical needs. It is enough to go through a training program to acquire some petty technical skill, then come to work on time and exert the very modest effort needed to hold a job. The only requirements are a moderate amount of intelligence and, most of all, simple obedience. If one has those, society takes care of one from cradle to grave. Yes, there is an underclass that cannot take the physical necessities for granted, but we are speaking here of mainstream society. Thus, it is not surprising that modern society is full of surrogate activities. These include scientific work, athletic achievement, humanitarian work, artistic and literary creation, climbing the corporate ladder, acquisition of money and material goods far beyond the point at which they cease to give any additional physical satisfaction, and social activism, when it addresses issues that are not important for the activist personally, as in the case of white activists 
who work for the rights of non-white minorities. These are not always pure surrogate activities, since for many people they may be motivated in part by needs other than the need to have some goal to pursue. Scientific work may be motivated in part by a drive for prestige, artistic creation, by a need to express feelings, militant social activism by hostility. But for most people who pursue them, these activities are in large part surrogate activities. For example, the majority of scientists will probably agree the fulfillment they get from their work is more important than the money and prestige they earn. For many, if not most people, surrogate activities are less satisfying than the pursuit of real goals. That is, goals that people would want to attain even if their need for the power process were already fulfilled. One indication of this is the fact that in many or most cases, people who are deeply involved in surrogate activities are never satisfied, never at rest. Thus, the money maker constantly strives for more and more wealth. The scientist no sooner solves one problem than he moves on to the next. The long-distance runner drives himself to run always further and faster. Many people who pursue surrogate activities will say that they get far more fulfillment from these activities than they do from the mundane business of satisfying their biological needs. But that is because in our society, the effort required to satisfy the biological needs has been reduced to triviality. More importantly, in our society, people do not satisfy their biological needs autonomously, but by functioning as parts of an immense social machine. In contrast, people generally have a great deal of autonomy in pursuing their surrogate activities. Autonomy as a part of the power process may not be necessary for every individual, but most people need a greater or lesser degree of autonomy in working towards their goals. What do you think? Do you need that autonomy? Do you have that autonomy in your life? Do you prefer to work alone or do you work in groups? I, for one, love people and I like being around them, but I can't stand to be around them all the time. I, I think I'm a really social person, but I, I really, really enjoy my time alone. I really... And in fact, if I can't be alone for a little while, every day I go crazy. It just seems to me that when you're around people or when you're in the work environment, then your mind is not your own in a way. But most people need a greater or lesser degree of autonomy in working toward their goals. Their efforts must be undertaken on their own initiative and must be under their own direction and control. Yet most people do not have to exert this initiative, direction, and control as single individuals. It is usually enough to act as a member of a small group. Thus, if half a dozen people discuss a goal among themselves and make a successful joint effort to attain that goal, their need for the power process will be served. But if they work under rigid orders, handed down from above, and leave them no room for autonomous decision and initiative, then their need for the power process will not be served. The same is true when decisions are made on a collective basis. If the group making the collective decision is so large that the role of each individual is insignificant. It is true that some individuals seem to have little need for autonomy. Either their drive for power is weak 
or they satisfy it by identifying themselves with some powerful organization to which they belong. And then there are unthinking animal types who seem to be satisfied with a purely physical sense of power. The good combat soldier who gets his sense of power by developing fighting skills that he is quite content to use in blind obedience to his superiors. But for most people, it is through the power process, having a goal, making an autonomous effort, and attaining the goal, that self-esteem, self-confidence, and a sense of power are acquired. When one does not have adequate opportunity to go through the power process, the consequences are, depending on the individual and on the way the power process is directed, the consequences are boredom, demoralization, low self-esteem, inferiority, defeatism, depression, anxiety, guilt, frustration, hostility, spouse or child abuse, insatiable hedonism, abnormal sexual behavior, sleep disorders, eating disorders, etc., Pretty fascinating, right? It, it really speaks to the heart of, you know what? I, I think that what he's talking about is clearly visible in today's society. We have more people on the planet than we've ever had, and the one of the biggest problems plaguing our planet is loneliness. Right? We've, we have traded the word religion for the word productivity. We have adhered to the theory of people being interchangeable parts. And it's not true. It's like that system is breaking down. It's not working. And, you know, how many suicides are happening, especially with COVID? How much starvation is there? How much destruction of the family unit has there been depression and anxiety boredom I mean I think that's what a lot of the lockdowns are shining upon I think that the the lockdowns have caused us to shine a light upon the problems of society and those problems are indeed boredom demoralization, self esteem inferiority, defeatism and depression and anxiety And it's because people can't fulfill their goals. Because people don't have the autonomy. Or they're afraid to take a chance. Or they're they're told not to do it. They're told... Think about this one. Growing up, all day long, what do we tell our boys? Don't be violent. Don't get in a fight. Turn the other cheek. Walk away. Like We're raising a generation of giant pussies. And why is that? Like, it's a program. We're programming our young men to never use violence. And violence is the only way to overthrow the power structure. You see how that works? From a very early age, we're training people not to use the very techniques that can change the future for them and their families. Don't be violent. Violence is the only way to solve real problems. Now, make I'm not calling for violence, but I'm telling you, if you're honest with yourself, look at what we do with regime change. Why does our military go into other countries to secure resources for business? Why do they have to use violence? Because that's the only way to steal people's resources. It's the only way to overthrow governments. Is that 
is, if not actual violence, then the threat of violence. And another thing to think about is, that's why, you know, this idea of violence is an idea that is deeply rooted in the American, not just the American, it's deeply rooted in the human psyche. That's why when you look at corporations or businesses or the quote-unquote workplace, when a man and a man, if, if you are a, let's say you're an owner or you're a manager and you have a male employee and you get into a fight, or you could just be two employees. Either way, two men in the workplace, when they get into an argument, there's an underlying threat of violence. I don't care what anybody says. There is a potential chance for these two men to start wailing on each other, maybe even kill each other. The threat may be small, but it's there. Additionally, when you're at work and a man and a woman have a conversation, there's an underlying possibility of sex there. Maybe it's not really, I mean, it may not seem possible, but on a biological level, a straight man and a straight woman, they could have sex. I'm not saying that they're attracted to each other, but I'm just saying it's a different relationship. There's an underlying potential for attractiveness. Whereas men on men, there's an underlying possibility for violence. And that fundamentally changes the way people react. And so I think that that's a part of equality that no one's factoring in. Like this is pretty new, like the men and women in the workplace and equality and and understanding how we react to each other. And I, you know, I, I think that dovetails nicely with leftism in that. Like, well, how come we're not equal? Well, because these two guys might kill each other and this man as one may fall in love. It's possible. I'm not saying that will happen. I'm just saying that's something to think about in the workplace relationships. So, well, I think we're, well, I'm going to shut it down right there for right now. And uh, tomorrow we're going to get into the sources of social problems. So I hope every one of you has an amazing day. I hope you try to utilize some of your autonomy. Reach out to your friends, to your loved ones. And set some goals for yourself to make the world a better place and your life a better place. All right. Aloha. Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge. And I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now. And it's been so rewarding to me that I just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision... Follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true. But you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, 
a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.